Today's episode is sponsored by Exordium. Exordium take hassle and guesswork out of DIY musicianship by providing solutions that help you create better music and reach a wider audience. All their services are completely customizable to suit your project's needs. Use offer code BMM to get 10% off your first project. My guest today comes from the folkier side of town because you get a little bit of everything on the old Campbell Talks and Bristol Made music. She is a singer, songwriter, musician, a poet and a teacher as well. Her band Hands of the Heron have their debut record out on Spotify and all those good streaming platforms and they have a new record in the works as well. I had a really, really good time talking of her. Hope you have a great time listening. Please give it up for Bethany Roberts. Okay, fantastic. I'm going to have a mic a little bit closer to you as well. I've, uh, I'm quite... I'm talking quieter than usual. Yeah, see, this is the difference between folk musicians and rock musicians. <laughs> this is also the, the reality of being a singer and teacher in February. When I'm just prone to getting colds and have worked a lot lately, so <laughs> I used I've just I've got kind of got to the end of my juice carton in terms of energy <laughs> and vocal vocal ability. So I'm saving it all for singing and talking is a very quiet art for me right now. Okay, well we've got the mic gain up quite high. <laughs> So but, um, we don't want you to strain yourself. We don't yeah. need, yeah. It's yeah. It's uh. It's it's. I've also given up drinking for February, which is helping loads because it means I uh. don't go to noisy pubs uh. and and talk too loud, which uh. which is seems to be part and parcel of being a musician is that you tend to find yourself in a lot of pubs, a lot of pubs where mm. everyone talks over loud music. Yeah, and then you drink because it's. Makes because it more it, comfortable. Yeah, you can't be in a pub with a soda and lime. I mean, no, I, I've done it a few times and I've survived. Yeah. But it's just, just something about it. It just, just kind of makes you hate the world a little bit. Yeah, I've been getting into non-alcohol beer, which is good. The Gallimorphy does a great one. Yeah. Made from reclaimed orange peel. Mm. I really like. But it's definitely just making me... I'm just hibernating quite hard at the moment because it's... It's winter, and that it, way I don't lose my voice in pubs. It is, yeah. Well, it's nearly behind us. Yeah, thankfully. Nearly behind us, so that's all That's all good. Not lots of things to look forward to. Yeah. Although, to be fair, winter's usually the quietest time for me as a musician, or yeah. just in general. Yeah. And I have not stopped since Christmas this year. <laughs> it's been absolutely... Actually, not stopped since last summer. I thought I'd have a really quiet winter, and I haven't. So it's just been continually surprising that I've had loads of work. It's feast or famine, isn't it, with music? Mm, yeah. You know, you're either doing like two gigs a week and loads of other things, and you're running around like a headless chicken, or you're twiddling your thumbs thinking, uh oh. Yeah. So, what's my purpose? I'm never going to work again. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I find the same thing with writing that I'll either be writing songs constantly. Mm. I'm writing poetry constantly and that's the way that I look at the world and that's the way that I interpret all the information that I get and that's very normal when I'm in that period and then I will kind of come to the end of writing period and hone all that material and perform it loads and like work out how to play it with other people and in the process of doing that just kind of stop writing for a bit and then get to the end of the honing and performing period and be like I'm never going to write again (laughs) (laughs) oh no I've forgotten how to do it and panic for like a while 
Mm. And then stop panicking and realise that, oh, like, I, of, course I know, of course I still know how to do it. Yeah. But I'm coming out of one of those periods at the moment where I haven't been writing and learning how to write again is a really interesting thing because mm. every time I come back to it, I look at the last batch of songs that I wrote and work out what it is that I liked about those ones. Why did they stay? Why did I finish them? Yeah, yeah. And, and then try and try and let that influence my new writing. Yeah, and I think like when you have like when it comes in like peaks and troughs as it does for for most people. Uh, I mean, I try and write all the time nowadays, mm. but might be might get to a point when I'm performing more, or teaching more. That I, it might take a bit of a backseat. <clears throat> but when you come back to it, it's kind of like it's kind of like you've got like a new personality to it it takes it's like a different beast yeah so so I think it's absorbed all of the experiences that you've had mm. like I'm I'm learning so much from teaching like I learn so much every lesson that I teach and I know that that's influencing my writing awesome. for sure and like actually one of the biggest inspirations for my writing at the moment is that I run the open mic at the Miner's Arms oh week. yeah Presence open mic, which I inherited from a wonderful songwriter called Megs Emrys from mm. Emrys the Brave, and um, yeah, I've been covering for her while she's been she's been out for a bit, and it's been amazing just going along every week and holding space for people as they share this incredibly raw material, yeah. songs, poetry, instrumental work, whatever it is. There's no microphones, there's no amplifiers, it's all completely unplugged. And it's very, very raw, and we get a lot of regulars. And I come away from it every week just kind of gobsmacked <laughs> by everything that I've heard. And it's some of it's quite out there, and that's great. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of people, it's either they're kind of their first open mic that they're exploring, or mm-hmm. they kind of come quite religiously every week, and music's like their passion, but it's not their job or whatever. Yeah. And it's so inspiring. Um and it's really been prodding me to, to write again because I've got enough songs I can kind of turn up and play like a different one every week. But I've I've gone round the cycle of my songs enough now that it's challenged me to write. And I think having a space that you can fill, having a, a weekly space, like having, mm. having a residency like that is amazing because it pushes you to be in touch with your own process and to be creating. Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, it can really sort of encourage you when you're hearing like people like writing new songs all the time. There's, uh, you definitely sort of pick up on that, on that. I don't want to say pick up on that energy because it sounds really. But it is. But, but it, that is it's true. That is the reality. It? It, it is an energetic process, and it's like seeing people who come into the space and they're absolutely burning to share the new song. And I remember that feeling, and mm. it makes me want to. It makes me want to find my pathway to that feeling again, which yeah. is. A lot of the time, like, realising how distracted I am by the admin of teaching and the the emails and the admin of running a band or, like, being part of a band even is, like, a lot of work. Herding cats. Herding cats. I mean, we're a collective, so we herd each other, really. (laughs) We're just (laughs) continually kind of chasing each other's tails. That sounds even more chaotic. It's (laughs) it's, it's wonderful and 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 it's chaotic and it's great, but we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to organise, like, five people's lives into finding maybe one day a week we can we can get together and rehearse or record and it's a lot of work but within all of that I I'm trying to remember that if I stop and just get off social media for a bit and like 
yeah. look around me at what's going on, then maybe I'll write a poem about it. Maybe mm. it'll become a song. Yeah, I deleted Instagram and Facebook off my phones. It's really good, really I've, good tactic. Yeah, I, st- I you know I've still got my accounts just for promoting the band and yeah. for BMM and my guitar teaching. <clears throat> But it's just great not having that yeah. distraction. So the two things I've got to distract me on my phone is either messaging someone, which mm. is what the phone's for. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, or there's like a, a chess app or there's an ear training app. Yeah, nice. I know. I'm such <clears> a <throat> bloody nerd, aren't I? I need to no, get a life. I've, but... just, I've just got obsessed with this new app. Um, my partner showed it to me last week for violin intonation, but it's called Vocal Pitch Monitor. And it's like a... It's like a uh, What's it called when people have a lie detector test? Is it lithograph? Polygraph. Polygraph. Yeah. It's a lithograph or something else. But it's, it looks like a polygraph, but it's got all of the frequencies as lines, and you sing or play mm. into it, and it shows you the exact oscillation of your sound wave. Ooh. It's insane. It's so cool, and I, I use it now for my practice, and I use it with my students, and I've just been nerding out on it so hard <laughs> this week, just seeing what my voice does close up. Oh um, wow! My violin pitch is like close up, and it's kind of brutal, but <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, uh, do, do you reckon that's sort of made you more sort of conscious of like pitching and intonation than you already? Well, I mean, you already must be playing violin and vocal. Like that's you've already got to have a very keen ear for that. Yeah, so has that? It's it's made that, me. That well, it's made me more just just tuning into it even more because I mean, yeah, I grew up singing in choirs so like you you have to learn yeah about where to place your voice and orchestra is the same so yeah. like my, my childhood was basically spent in choir practice or orchestra rehearsal all the time ah. <laughs> um i just did a lot that's what my family do and we spent a lot of time i mean my parents spent their lives like ferrying me and my brothers to various rehearsals dance classes whatever because that was what we that's what we were interested in, and mm. we're really lucky that we were able to be supported in that by our family. But yeah, I had to learn quite early on to know that the note that I was singing or playing was in line with the people around me. Yeah. Kind of before I was old enough to critically evaluate it. Okay. So, I mean, that th- that instinct to find whatever I need to do to be in tune is very strong, but. Yeah. Seeing it, seeing it close up on a screen, like with this app, you there's tiny, tiny oscillations that you don't even know are there. Like changing vowel sound between within a word on the same note, like it will alter the pitch in an infinitesimally Ooh. small way. And it's so interesting to be nice. like, ah, okay, I need to pay, I need to pay more attention. I need to always. Always pay more attention and like finding a way to sit inside my body properly when I'm singing or playing, yeah. so that I'm fully, fully immersed in the note that I'm playing. Like that's my challenge at the moment because when you've done something for a long time, it does become muscle memory, and you can just like yeah, you can get for singing. Yeah, but you, you do sort of want to be in that sort of situation, particularly for gigging or being really creative, because mm-hmm. you don't want to be thinking about your technique all the time no of course but I think it's about having a rigorous enough practice that you you are instinctively playing Mm. to a level that you want to be playing at and like that's a challenge for me because I I used to have a terrible relationship with practice and it's now like the thing that I love doing most especially violin practice I love it but um, I've been thinking a lot lately about this whole idea of conscious incompetence 
and conscious yeah. competence and then yeah. unconscious competence. And that's obviously the stage you want to get to. Yeah. But I feel like I'm going to be in the conscious incompetence stage forever because mm. there's always thresholds that I'm going to see that I want to meet, that I want to get past, that I want to transcend. Um, yeah, I understand. In my playing. Yeah. But I'd love to get to the point where I'm unconsciously competent and playing. I'm sure you're probably like already unconsciously competent. It's just you'd sort of like you probably like turn on turn on your self awareness every now and again, depending on what you're doing. Yeah. If you're performing you don't really want to be thinking about what you're doing. You just want to be in the moment. Absolutely. But if you're practicing or rehearsing, then I think it's good to be to have that level of consciousness with and like really like look at yourself and what you're doing and uh yeah, so it, it's a good way to look at like sort of conscious incompetence or conscious con- unconscious competence. Mm-hmm. I'm getting mixed up here. Um, <laughs> it's such a thorny phrase mm, to get your tongue around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's a good way to look at it, but like you, you don't want to get completely. No, of course. Into it. it's, it's a, for me, it's a it's a it's a structure to think about my practice in. It's not the yeah. it's not the end. It's not the end game. The end game is always to enjoy playing. And yeah. to find a feeling of space and to find a feeling of like stillness in myself when I'm playing. But I mean, I, I played last week with Waldo's Gift and Ishmael Ensemble yeah. in London. We did a rework of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, which is, it turns out, a terrifying thing to rework because people love that album like more than their children. <laughs> like, people are so protective of that album. And yeah. the only other time I've really experienced that level of like, scrutiny was when we reworked Radioheads and Rainbows last year oh, yeah. gift. we just did that at the Gallimorphy and it was amazing but it was like singing to a packed room of Radiohead nerds of which I am also yeah. one but this is like another level but but playing this gig last week in London um, and when we did it in Stroud it was the same actually I, I had this feeling playing with these guys of real real flow like we were genuinely all so immersed in the sound that we were producing and in that moment on that stage, that was the only thing that mattered. Yeah. Was the fact that the five of us were having this quite intense musical conversation and it was... It was really joyful, but, like, wow, it's also terrifying. Mm. So much adrenaline and you're, like... It's a train that you cannot get off once you've got on. Especially with improvised music when you're you're drawing so much on everything that's happening around you and your senses are so alert. And in that moment, yeah, you're not thinking about technique. There's no mm. there's no point in time where you can be like, oh, I wonder if my vibrato is the right speed. I wonder if I could pitch yeah. better. I wonder if blah, blah, blah. You're just doing it because there's no time to react. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think that's why, that's why we practice for mm. situations like that where yeah. you're not thinking about your instrument, you're thinking about yourself as a like a cog in the, in the same engine yes exactly and you want to be yeah so you kind of have to think you have to have a bigger picture than what you're just doing with your hands or your vocal cords or whatever the, the, the most amazing person I ever heard the most amazing description of this I ever heard was um, do you know The Comet Is Coming it's a, can't say it's, it's a really amazing I don't even know how to describe it it's not jazz but it's influenced by jazz Um synth drum sax thing uh featuring this this sax player called Shabaka Hutchins who's mm. an extraordinary player and I saw him do a question and answer session at a festival called Brainchild quite a few years ago now and he described the process of practice as like learning 
every corner of your instrument and what it can do, what you can unlock with your hands. Knowing that so intricately, so well, that when you get on stage and it breaks for your solo, you have no idea exactly what you're playing, but you know that it's got some internal logic and it's got some structure and it holds up. And so that you're not thinking, you're just in this state where you're having a conversation with your instrument. And then when the solo is over, you've got no real idea of what you played. Yeah. And I love that concept so yeah. much because it's like you're just open to, re- to just, like, so happy, but you're open to like receiving whatever you need to channel in that moment. Mm. And you're not, you know that you've done the work. Yeah, your technique's like not getting in the way. Mm-hmm. You're just doing your thing. Yeah, technique should be transparent. Yeah. The same yeah. way like if you watch a film and it's set in a certain era. Mm. The set and the costume design, everything should be so well thought through that yeah. it's transparent. You don't even notice it because it's exactly. If you're in like a really immersive, watching a really immersive scene, if you see a boom mic drop into the shot or something God, like yeah. that, it will <clears throat> completely take you out because the whole thing is you for, you you forget that you're a person looking at a screen mm. where someone has been doing some has shot of a camera and there's actors saying. Words someone else has written. Yeah, it, it breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, you, you feel like you're there in, in, in the experience, you know. Yeah, uh, and having said that though, like one of the most endearing things I ever see is musicians who get it wrong on stage. Love it. Like, I love it so you much. come to one of my shows, yeah, you see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I love when people forget the words. I love it when things go a bit wrong because it's really human. Um, it's, it's, it's really lovely, mm. especially if the rest of the show is really tight and then there's just yeah. this one moment where they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's, I, it, it's really nice. I think partly because it's really reassuring. But, It depends yeah. how the musician wears it as well, because the best thing to do is just be like, yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah completely. <laughs> That's kind of funny, best... Uh... <laughs> totally, and it's happened to everybody, and I think you don't you don't quite know how you're going to respond to it until it's happened to you. Yeah. So, I f- like, I find it really inspiring when I see the musicians that I really like get it a bit wrong, but then they pick it up again, and it's like that moment of recovery for me yeah. says so much about that musician. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Learn to pick yourself, like, learning how to sort of, like, savour mm. sort of situation. Yeah, like, I've definitely become a little bit more, I've got a lot more laid back with things like that. I'll just, I just find stuff like that funny now. Mm-hmm. I can... Yeah, I, I used to get like really like annoyed at myself, and that's, that's I'm sure we all do, right? You know, especially when you get really into into learning your instrument. For me, it was guitar. Mm. You know, being so critical of yourself, do you just stop enjoying it? And it's kind of like, oh, what are we doing here? Totally. Yeah. Well, when I, when I look back at some of the gigs um, that I've played, I I wasn't there for some of them really mm. mentally. I mean, I have a so I have a an anxiety disorder that means I'm like I've have at various points just really struggled with like being mm. present and I'm lucky now that I'm able to get on with my life. But there was a point where it was like really difficult, and I was still playing gigs through some of that time. And like actually, I spent the whole I remember some of these gigs, and I just spend the whole time like beating myself up for something that had happened in the song before and therefore not being there in the song that I was in and then making more mistakes because I was just in this cycle of regret. And yeah. I think one of the best lessons I've learned in performance and in life in general, but especially in performance, is to let the wrong notes go. Yeah. Because you're not going to get them back. You're not going to get a chance to redress them. You yeah. have to learn to recover. Mm-hmm. But it's 
hard. It oh, is yeah. re- it's really hard. Yeah. I think that's an important thing for people to hear as well. Like, it's okay to... Oh, totally. It's okay to fuck up. Yeah. I spend <laughs> my life in teaching, asking people to be less cautious and mm. to accept that maybe the sound that they're going to produce is not necessarily the sound that they expect or yeah. that there will be wrong notes and that especially they especially for vocal as well especially for vocal and when so many people have like these horribly conditioned ideas about their voice and what their voice should be and mm-hmm. what their voice can be and the fact that a lot of people are kind of suppressing really nice elements of their voice because they have an idea of like the way that it should sound I know what you mean yeah uh, or they're holding back a lot because they're frightened of the power of actually being heard or they're Pushing too much because they have at some point acquired this idea that that's what a powerful voice does. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, I don't know, like allowing a voice to be flawed, I think, is a very, very, mm. a very powerful experience. I agree. about singing in the same way that you do but I've had like vocal lessons and I mm. sing myself and I completely agree a lot of it is just letting it happen mm. letting it happen and uh, trying to yeah just uh, getting used to your own voice is like half the struggle almost you know um, because f- with learning an instrument I think a lot of it is you're trying to sound like your heroes yeah. That's why you get so many kids, like electric guitars with Stratocasters, because mm-hmm. I wanted to sound like John Fashanti and Jimi Hendrix. Mm. You can't really do that with your voice. Well, you can, you know, people do. But... I find it yeah. fascinating how much people subconsciously emulate the people that they like. Mm. And, like, you know, I teach people who are in their 70s and have always sung with a slight American blues twang because. Yeah that was what their heroes did. Yeah. And that was the the way they learned to sing. And I'm just... The, the question I'm coming to with to myself and to all of my students at the moment is, are you making this stylistic decision out of choice or habit? Are you even making a stylistic decision? Mm. Are, you, are you using your voice in this way because you've chosen to do it or because you've habitually done it and therefore absorbed it into your practice? Yeah. And 
I love the process of getting people past sounding like something that they think they should sound like. Or, I mean, a lot of people do try and sound like their heroes. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I definitely found this when I was growing up because I grew up in, in, in this choral singing world. Like, um, that was really the focus of my childhood, I think, and my teenage years was, was choral singing. My mum's a singing teacher in Leeds mm. choirs, and we were all in the county choirs, and, like, spent a lot of time doing that. And then I came to university... And I was really convinced that I was going to be a choral singer. Mm. And then I did it a bit at university, but it wasn't right. And my voice didn't quite fit. But I spent a long time kind of beating myself up for the fact that I didn't think that my voice was good enough. And then I went over to jazz, and I don't have a classically jazz voice. I actually still, I love singing jazz. I Mm. love it so much, and I always will, and I've loved it for a really long time. But I, among the kind of student jazz scene, I didn't have like a belty, mm-hmm. big voice. I still had a kind of chorally influenced voice. Mm. And then I sang jazz for a bit. And then I stopped singing for a while because I had a long period of illness. And then came back and started writing my own stuff and dabbling in the folk scene a bit. And found a home for my voice in my own writing. And it was kind of the, the first time it felt like my voice was in the right place, really, oh, since nice. since being a kid and singing in choirs. And have ended up in a band. So my band, Hands of the Heron, is um, the band that I put together a few years ago, but to, to, basically to perform the songs that I'd written. And it very quickly became more than I'd anticipated. And it, it was amazing what it is now. It's a female-led songwriters collective. So everybody in the band writes and everyone's got autonomy kind of within the compositional process which is great Mm. but we basically kind of function as a tiny choir and we write all of these really strange beautiful harmonies and I know that that's the place that my voice is most comfortable Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that we've ended up writing and I and I see this so much in my students as well as like I hear them most when they're singing their own stuff yeah. Because there's no mask and there's no <laughs> sense of like trying to siphon their voice down a certain road. Yeah, and there's no one to like compare themselves to. Yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah, that's so cool. It's a really interesting experience. I think that we learn so much about who we are by the way we use our voices and mm. that's something that I'm continually fascinated by. And like the more that I get into the voice work field, the more I'm totally intrigued by what our voices do. Yeah. And how we unlock them. Yeah, there's so much personality in the voice. Yeah. I've never thought of it like that. Mm. I suppose, sort of like your tone of voice has has so much information into it. If you hear someone talking in a certain way, mm. uh, you kind of get an idea, like, you kind of get an idea maybe of sort of like what sort of mood they're in, what sort of personality they have. Mm. Uh yeah, I never thought of it like that. I mean, it's something that we're all going to be like conscious or subconsciously aware of, mm. if that makes sense. It is you know? true. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's like you know, you, you. It's hard to get the measure of someone's emotional experience until you hear them speak. It's like your friend sends you a message and you're like, "Oh, how are you doing?" And they're like, "I'm fine." And then if you call them, you say, "How are you doing?" And they're like, 
Oh, I'm fine. Like, yeah. well, you immediately know that it's not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hate messaging, but messaging is great for a time and a place. Yeah. Like, meet your cafe keynote at two o'clock. Mm. Awesome. Great. But if it's like, how do you feel about this? It's like, uh, calling, you want to talk on the phone's okay, but if you really want to talk about something important, mm. you got to do it face to face. Totally. Yeah. I, I struggle with talking on the phone. Even, yeah, I, I'd always prefer to meet people face to face. And it's the same reason that I think I. I really just go back to where we started this conversation. Like I really struggle in like noisy pub environments because yeah. I can't fully hear the tone of someone's voice. Okay. Because there's so many other voices, and I've got like I've got very sensitive hearing, and I'll pick up lots and lots of other cues all the time, and it's kind of like sensory overload of being yeah. bombarded with so much of that. Yeah. Because there's quite a loud, often quite emotive space. And yeah. Um, it's often quite charged, quite, you know. Yeah. There's alcohol about, yeah, yeah. you know. And I just can't process that. I can't mm-hmm. process that much information that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like, yeah, the, the kind of dream dream way to communicate with people was either through music or just through having a like a quiet chat. I think. Yeah. But it's funny that the things I notice, I do quite a lot of spoken word stuff at the moment, and I'm working with um, a poet that we both know called Beth Calverley. Mm-hmm to do this new collaborative thing called House of Figs, which is so called because we're both called Bethany, and Bethany translates to House of Figs in Hebrew, which is the root of my name. Um, yeah, well, you learn something new every day podcasting. Yeah. yeah or so, every day I podcast. I mean, it also means House of Pain and House of God, depending on the context of the translation, but we like House of Figs. <laughs> the least it's like we are house of pain oh, no. I think A I think that's taken and B it's not really our mood yes uh, jump around yeah um, but it's yeah. not yeah because you could tell your folk musicians if you were a hard rock no, gals it would be house would of pain be, all yeah, the way through totally but yeah we so we've put together this new project which is mostly centred around Beth's poetry and my compositional responses to it as a multi-instrumentalist and singer but also we Sometimes she'll generate a poem from a conversation that we've had. And she does this amazing project called The Poetry Machine where she has the typewriter mm-hmm. and people tell her stories and she makes a poem out of it there and then. And it's absolutely brilliant. If you don't know her work, check it out. I know you do, but I'm talking to your lovely yeah, listeners. Yeah. But so it again, just for... The Poetry Machine. So I think on Instagram it's like at Poetry Machine and things like that. There you go. Check it out, guys. Um, but she will sometimes... Yeah, we'll have these conversations about experiences we've had. And she'll sit there and type up poem and then she'll read it to me and then I'll find some musical mood for it based either with my loop station or like just some banjo chords or some vocals or some violin or whatever it is and I find it really interesting to challenge myself to pick out the shades of of meaning that she has in her words and the way that she delivers it in her voice Mm. to match that or contradict it or juxtapose something with it or whatever it is like create some amplification of the meaning of the poem through music it's such an interesting challenge and then I have the other side of it with my duo that I have my partner who's an amazing multi-instrumentalist called Rowan Elliott who plays a band called Solana and in that situation I'm the poet and he's the musician yeah so it's a really interesting thing like finding this relationship often quite subtle relationship between the spoken word of poetry and musical soundscapes that can go with it. It's kind of hard to explain, isn't it? 
Although you've just done, done a very good job on it. No, it is, though. It is hard to explain. Yeah. It's hard to explain why putting a certain chord next to another chord and moving it to a third chord creates a deeply emotional experience, but it does. Yeah. And one of the things I love about about music is that I know the mechanics of how to do that. Like, I know, I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be able to put my finger on, like, why even doing something as subtle as, like, changing from major to, like, relative minor sometimes can be really, really, like, oh, it can just do something. Mm. There's still a mystery around why certain chords affect us emotively. Yeah. To me. And I know, it's like, it's a weird job as a composer or songwriter or whatever, like, because you're kind of a professional manipulator. Yeah. <laughs> um... It's the same with any sort of artistic sort of sort of trade. Yeah. You know, like um, that's basically what what you do as a sort of musician or a filmmaker mm-hmm. or a comedian or an actor or whatever is you're trying to create a certain emotion out of people, mm. which is kind of str- really odd when you think about it like that. <laughs> it is really odd. It is really odd. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday. This is freaking me out. I'm thinking about things in a very literal sense now. <laughs> yeah, but it is. I, I think we have great power sometimes Ooh. that we don't address and that musicians are, like, conjurers, you know? We, we, we weave something out of nothing and yeah. then sometimes it can affect someone's day or their week With or their month power. or their year. Yeah. Great power comes great responsibility. Oh, yeah. that's even more scary because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not responsible... <laughs> We're not responsible people by and large. No. I'm sure you are. I'm but. not at all. I'm not a responsible person. But I do find that so I you know, I do things like whole singing workshops and I did one last night and we had this lovely kind of half hour of, of improvised free singing. Sitting cool. in the dark with our eyes closed, just singing anything that came responding to each other in the circle. There was like about ten or eleven of us and it is really emotional experience. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know why it taps into some deeper seam of feeling, but it does, and we come out of it, and it's like it's like waking up from a weird dream. Yeah. Or a strange kind of hallucinogenic moment, you know, where you're mm. just like, something something is triggered in your, deeply in your subconscious when you create some sort of musical happening, if it... Especially with singing, I find. Yeah, it's that sort of bond with making music with people. Mm. Um, or anything sort of artistic. I heard uh, a comedian actually talking about this on one of his podcasts. Uh, um, it was a surprisingly articulate point. Um, well, you know, I don't mean surprisingly, but, you know, mm. well, I wasn't expecting to hear it that in that context, but talking about uh, sort of like artistic expression, it's in. It's kind of what really sort of separates us just from the animals. Mm. Um, you know, it like a great song or a great film or, you know, a good bit of comedy or something, it, it sort of takes you out of your... He was saying, like, you know, you know, with our sort of biological sort of functions, you know, we need to sort of, like, work, uh, we need to eat, we need to sleep, and we need to procreate. Mm-hmm. But um, when you sort of, like... you, But art can sort of, like... Tr- this sounds really pretentious, and I'm... <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm saying it wrong. But, um, yeah, so, like, yeah, creative process or sort of the, the shared experience does sort of take you outside of your simple biology yes into something else where you, where you stop thinking about those sort of things and 
Yeah, it, it sort of separates us from the animals. <laughs> it's, it's true. The creative process and, and receiving creative artefacts from other people is the most therapeutic experience. Um, I've written my way through some like, pretty major yeah. experiences of... <clears throat> Yeah, like I had a I had a nervous breakdown two years ago, which was two oh, yeah. and a half years ago, some amount of time ago, uh, which was obviously horrible. Um, but the strangest thing about it was that at the time I thought I'd stopped writing. I stopped writing songs, which was like really shocking, because that was what I'd been doing for a while up until that point. But I've actually got journals and journals and journals full of writing. And it's not mm. poetry, it's not pretty. Mm. But I was constantly writing down kind of often the, a very similar experience. Um, but it was so important to externalise that. And then as I kind of came out of it and got better, I started writing music again. And it was so good to feel that that expression come back and actually weirdly one two of the things I remember really clearly that kind of like took me back into life so weird the first one was um an episode of Call the Midwife this period drama like Sunday Night Period Drama on on BBC I'm a sucker for a Sunday Night Period Drama on BBC (laughs) um and it was really it was just really emotional and there was some episode where, like, a character had passed away and everyone was mourning her loss. And one of the older characters said, are we going to spend the rest of our lives um, grieving what we've lost or are we going to pay attention to what we still have? Hmm. And it was such a kind of... It was a profound moment within that TV episode, but it was, like, kind of... It's kind of a cliché. But I don't know why, but something in that just brought me back to life. And I think I sobbed for about four hours in the bath. Oh. And then and then was fine. Yeah. Like, not fine, fine, but I was definitely on the way to being better. So got, got a lot of the poison out, right? Yeah, and it was just such a weird trigger, but it was like, that's why mm. we need these stories, because these stories remind us that everything that we could possibly experience has already happened to somebody. Yeah. Which was very much the experience I had with writing songs that came out of an obsession with Joni Mitchell that I kind of started mm. I kind of started really loving her music when I was about 20 mm. um, and I remember really clearly sitting in my garden on Banner Road just down the road from here when I used to live in Montpellier and listening to one of her songs called It's Just a Dance which is on Mingus I think which is an amazing album if you hadn't heard it. It's, really, it's when she's kind of jab- dabbling with jazz musicians and it's got Mingus and Jaco Pistorius on it. Nuts. Um, it's pretty cool. And a dabble, that's a pretty good, yeah, pretty strong totally. dabble. Well, I think she was like quite heavily into the jazz scene by this point. It's like 70s. But yeah, she, she was just singing these really... What to me at the time was like, it was like a revelation listening to her lyrics because I just remember thinking like, well, she's survived that pain. Mm. Then I... I can survive this, this will be fine. And this is before, like, before a lot of the darkness I experienced, but actually it directly led to me learning how to write songs mm. when I was in my early 20s and, like, 
I I think that that the echoes that you have from from people that influence you because they're telling stories that you empathize with and that resonate with you are just the most important and it's like I'm always grateful to the musicians that I am inspired by because I I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for them Mm. which is why I think it's like the arts should be absolutely defended against everything ever and music is one of the most important things that you can pass on to people yeah I agree I agree it brings a lot of it's just it's just great. Yeah. Um when I had uh my friend David on last episode, mm. I was sort of making a joke, being a bit tongue in cheek, saying, you know, like, you know, musicians, you know, if you look at a hunter gatherer sort of sense, you know, musicians, comedians, artists, we're not really that useful, we're not we're not building anything, we're not like mm. killing any woolly mammoths or anything like that, you know. But he was make I wasn't being completely serious, yeah. you know. Um no, no, he was making a point. Yes, he went very articulately on it, and I felt a bit silly. He was just basically saying, like, well, no, because, you know, it's what people enjoy. So, you know, like, uh, if people don't have, say, like a, like a, a film to watch or a comedy gig or a music mm. gig or, you know, some, something like that, mm. then inevitably their, you know, their productivity and their morale is going to drop. And, you know, so, yeah, it's... a. Uh, it's it's absolutely got its sort of function and role. It's just I think it's because we live in a sort of um, world uh, that is so into the numbers and so into quanti- mm. uh, quantifying things. Yeah. And with artistic expression, it's really hard to quantify it. So like oftentimes when I was teaching guitar a lot more, um, uh, you'd sometimes get sort of like a parents that. Uh, for, for, for no fault at all would sort of want to sort of know the benefits you know mm-hmm. of like learning an instrument like guitar um, you know because they're, they're spending money every week mm-hmm. and you know and and, and it's not like the, you can get grades in, in instruments obviously but it's not the same as as say like of education with like traditional education but so point I always sort of try and make is it's not just the skill of being able to play an instrument or play a song you weren't able to play before it's everything you learn with that. Totally, the process. The process. It's so like putting in the effort on something that is hard and making making the progress on it and being like, oh, I couldn't do that last week, but I worked on it every day for the last seven days mm. and now I can do it. And, you know, and if you've got an encouraging teacher, uh, which I certainly try to be, yeah. I'm sure you are as well, yeah. you, you know, like, you know, give credit where credit's due. And also, like, underlining, like, this is what happens when you stick when you stick to work it. I, I totally agree. And actually, I've been really inspired lately with the progress of one of my students who is my age. And she's decided to learn the violin. She's always wanted to do it. She's always kind of picked up little bits. But she really wants to focus on it. And we've had, I think, three lessons. And she practices a little bit every day. Sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. And her improvement in three weeks is... Like stratospheric. It, I'm just like, I'm so impressed by her. Yeah. And it makes me just see. I think it's the same attitude that some people have when they're like going to the gym loads and they're like smashing their personal best. And that's mm. something that is so easy to quantify in a way. Yes. Because there's machines that track it. Yeah. And like we don't have that in the same way in music. And yes, you're mm. right. You have grades and you have all these things. And like but, I did uh, all know, of that. I did. Not, yeah. It didn't make me into a musician. Like it gave me 
a lot of the language and I'm really glad that I did it and I'm really glad that I I'm glad that I studied music even though it was flawed at points of course because everything is um, <laughs> that's a spirit yeah. <laughs> I mean the, the, the classical music world is, is, a, is a very difficult place to be and I I'm glad I'm not there anymore. I really want to hear about that. But yeah, but, 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 yes, point, but the, <laughs> the, I'm really glad that I basically picked up enough of the language. Mm. But, you know, having a couple of grade eights and an undergrad degree and a master's degree, whatever, yeah. hasn't made me into a good musician. What's made me into a good musician is learning to listen to the inner compositional voice in my head and to listen to that bit of me that refuses to put my violin down when I'm almost at breaking point because I could... I could just push myself a bit further or refuses to, like, you know, that, that bit of me that wants to keep going and find another level of my musicianship because I'm never going to be done with this process. Yeah. You can never reach the end, mm. which is why There's I love no it. There's no finish line. There's no finish line. And, yeah, it's like, I sometimes I... I used to joke all the time that I had a useless degree, you know. I, I, I A lot of my friends did things like engineering or whatever. And, so... And all my friends are real people. Yeah, <laughs> all of this thing. And like, some of my friends have bought houses and done this. And like, you know, I've spent most of the year in a van, like, playing gigs and, and teaching and doing whatever. And and I used to wonder why I'd made that decision. Even when I had quite good work in the music industry and stuff before I became a performer. But now I see why it's important because... It is liberation, I think, in a way. And I see this every week with the open mic. Like, people come in and they are wrestling something. And they mm. share it with a group of people and then they feel better. Yeah. Where, uh, where is the uh, Miners Arms and which it's, nights is it on? It's in St. Werbergs. St. Werbergs. Um, it's right by the climbing centre that used oh, to be a church. Yeah. yeah. It's every Tuesday. Mm. We meet 8pm to 11pm. And it's busy at the moment. We've had a real boom. Um, well, hopefully this is going to help it boom some more. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nuts, really. It's kind of crazy. And sometimes so hasty, but lingering now, so much has happened. There's hope and sorrow in equal measure. There's a thousand things about you I will treasure But locked away in the library of my soul Deep down in an archive marked stories untold Use Rupert. Yeah. I'm thinking of changing to that because I want to move away from Apple. Yeah. Because it's more like a cult than a company. It is like. It sort of suck you in. I know. I've had a. I've always had a MacBook of some sort because, I've. It's always been really useful for music work. But yeah, I haven't. I'm not an Apple devotee. I've like you know I've had two laptops in my life and they've both been Macs and they've both lasted me for as absolute as long as they could. Yeah. Until. I mean, I've still got the second one. But, yeah, Apple is a bit... 
Yeah, it's but, just it, yeah. It kind of feels like they sort of punish you when you try and like use a bit of software that's not yeah. Theirs. Definitely. Well, I mean, the fact that my Apple computer can't talk to my Android phone is so stupid. Yeah, it's just yeah. so dumb. But yeah, Reaper, I really recommend because mm. it's it's. I used that a little bit back. At uni. It's really nice. I liked it. Yeah, and it's it's always being improved because it's open source and people update it, and it's great. I, I find it much more intuitive than logic. I used to use logic at school but and at uni, but like I never found it particularly instinctive. And same with Ableton, like mm. I get why people use Ableton, but it's not my bag. I really yeah. like Reaper. And I've thought about upgrading a couple of times to something else and I've just realised that Reaper does everything I want it to. So. Yeah. Like um when I was using Reaper it was at I was doing my degree and one of our it was computer composition in the final year we mm. had to do a surround sound composition nice. so I was using Reaper for that mm. oh it's a terrifying project <laughs> yeah sound design just exporting it like <laughs> bouncing it all down oh dear it turns out I rooted everything incorrectly and had to redo a bunch of stuff that's so stressful yeah I'm having a panic attack just thinking about yeah. it <laughs> yeah I thought I thought so many times I'd love to do a sound production course because I've picked up a lot of bits mm. and pieces of like enough of live stuff that I could just I know what to ask for in gigs and I can do a little bit of That's mixing so and enough production stuff that I can mix my own stuff I can make my own demos I can do stuff and I know mm. what to I know roughly what the spectrum of options is in terms of working with our producer and mm. getting our new hands to her and album done and stuff like that like I work alongside a producer, we all do, to kind of get it to the right sound. But I'd love to do a sound production course, partly because then I'd understand all these things about routing and I'd really understand. Mm. <laughs> and I'd love to do some sound design. But also because the number of times that I get the assumption from male sound engineers that I don't know anything mm. is still shocks me. It still shocks it's me. Unfortunate. It's just, it's it's prolific and like... It's the patriarchy in action, and it's it is a problem that a lot of my female musician friends have. Still, mm. and you'd think, you know, it's twenty twenty. Mm. We should have moved past this by now. But I just there are a lot of pockets of it still about. There's a lot of pockets of it. It's a lot of the old school guys who mm. who like what they like, and they feel like they can do a better job of mixing the musicians than maybe what the musicians think they can do, mm-hmm. and. The assumption so often is that as a woman, I don't know what I'm talking about. And so I'll kind of be a little bit undermined by the sound engineer when I'm asking for something and then they'll try something that doesn't work and then I'll say, well, yeah. can you try the thing that I asked for? And they try it and it works. And I'm like, well, yeah, I just, <laughs> yeah. it's my job. <laughs> Although sometimes sometimes you do get some engineers that are just grumpy. Who, whoever I, totally. You are. <laughs> of course, yeah. And yeah. I see them. I see them enough. But I mean, we're, we're, I'm in- Trust me, I've had. Oh, totally. I know exactly what yeah. you mean. Though. There yeah. are some great ones, though. There are some I mean, great ones. I'm incredibly lucky to be working. With times some really are a changing. People. They are, and they I, are a changing. Also, like I mean, I work with people, the producer, the kind of sound team that we're working with, and handed there and at the moment for our new record is is amazing, and we're all the same age, which helps. Oh, lovely. So we're working with Alex McIntyre, who mm-hmm. is a, just a wonderful human being. He's actually the resident sound engineer at Cafe Kino. Oh. Um, and that's how we met him, because he was mixing a gig for us. We were supporting our friend Ben Osborne, who's a wonderful musician who now lives in Berlin, but used to be Bristol-based. 
always supporting him at Cafe Kino a couple of years ago and Alex mixed our sound and it was almost the first time that we'd had someone mix us and understand that our sound is not conventional. Yeah. And so you can't mix it the way that you would if it was, you know, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we have five vocals and we have an accordion and we have a banjo, we have a flute, we have a clarinet, we have an electric guitar. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, cool, a challenge. Um, yeah, like a, I've, a lot of engineers do sort of good ones anyways. Uh, love that sort of thing. Yeah. Because it's, it, yeah, like, like, like you say, it's a chance. It's something new. Totally. Um, so we're really lucky that he came on board to be our producer for the new album. Um, mm-hmm. a little while ago and it's great because he doesn't try to impose an understanding of what he thinks it should sound like he's like he's very creative in his production but he's not trying to make us sound like something that we're not he's just finding yeah. ways to get the character of us and our songs through which is very important mm-hmm. because yeah that's it's it's very song based you know it's like it's very vocally based and he is really good at capturing that so we're working with him he's kind of shaping the sound of the album mm. and we love working with him and then we're working um with a guy called theo passingham from the band young waters as our engineer a studio engineer mm-hmm. so they're kind of working together oh brilliant so you've got an engineer and a producer got an engineer so. and a producer oh, fantastic. they're working in phantom ds studios which i'd really recommend actually it's phantom in ds studios phantom ds it's in easton it's just by iceland Okay, great. And Dawkins Brewery. And they have a really... You should have led the great... brewery. That's a much cooler Yeah, lap, well, I mean, it's great because if we record it, if we're recording on Saturday, the brewery opens at 4pm, so we just nip down and have a pint. And you've got Iceland. Okay. Well, you can yeah. get sandwiches and stuff. Yeah, we, we've we been doing a lot of like, oh, God, we're still in the studio and it's like 10 to 8 and Iceland closes in 10 minutes. Go and get loads of hummus. Yeah. <laughs> and crisps. Okay, let's keep going for another couple yeah. of hours. Because recording is, is mad. But... And this is why something I'm really, really excited about at the moment about being a musician in Bristol is that the people who have been writing and gigging and working really hard on the scene from our peer group and our age group for the last, you know, 10 years or so, simply all kind of came here as teenagers or some people that grew up here, right? Those people are now starting to be the people behind the mixing desk and starting to be the people booking the gigs and coming into some of these curating roles and leadership roles and production roles which means that it I find it easier and and it's just really lovely to see that happening you know fresh blood and you know because people can get into this thing with the best of intentions but they can get jaded yeah and disillusioned because totally. it's not an easy gig at all no um so you can just tell when people just been a bit just been through it too many times completely and also they lose just their passion it's, it's almost happened to me a few times yeah you know? um, um, yeah totally and it is a difficult thing to emotionally manage that when you're really excited about your project and someone isn't <laughs> and it feels yeah. like a chore it's like that's not fun but mm. i really like i really like the fact that at the moment a lot of the people coordinating elements around music like like gigs or production or whatever it's is people who are, are honing their craft as well. So it all feels yeah. like, at the moment, the, the Bristol scene, I hate the word scene, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, is well, I mean, that's what we're all here to promote. Totally. You know? There's <laughs> such emerging talent. And I mean, like, the Gallimorphy is such a bastion of that. And I, oh God, I love yeah. it so much. And like, yeah, we've awesome. we cut our teeth there with a couple of gigs back in the day. And like, watching Waldo's Gift, especially, like, and Snazback, I just... Mm emerge from that onto like much more into the national scene has been really amazing um, yeah and you know places like the canteen which mm-hmm. i used to work there a few years ago when the booking scene 
and booking team. And now, you know, we've played there a million times and it's just really lovely and we always take new projects there. We're actually playing there this coming Sunday with Rowan, my partner, um, oh. for a new duo project. Oh. And the uh, Yeah, that, that would have passed by the time it this passed. podcast no, I know. Dropped, but, but we're also doing a... Um, you should have been there, guys. Oh, yeah, it was great. We had a great time. <laughs> but we're also... Hands of the Heron are playing there on the 8th of March ah. uh, to celebrate International Women's Day, ah, which is going to be a very special gig because uh, we... Before I started writing songs back in 2015, I think it was 2015, I went to... I was working at the canteen mm-hmm. and um, an excellent local musician called Nula Honan uh, used to run this brilliant um, radio show and, and collective called The World Is Listening, which promoted kind of female musicianship and artistry. Mm-hmm. And she booked the whole week of International Women's Day performance for the canteen. So I was working alongside her. For the programming and on the Sunday afternoon gig, which is always the nicest thing in the canteen, the Sunday afternoons, it's lush. Mm. She booked This Is the Kit, mm-hmm. Rosie Plain and Rachel Dad, who at that point were all just about on the threshold of of really establishing themselves at, on the national yeah. circuit. And it was before they all kind of got picked up by Six Music and since then their careers have all just absolutely blossomed and it's Lovely. really it's been amazing. But it was the first time I'd ever seen any of them. And they all used to play in bands together, so they're really, they're really, really good friends. And I remember sitting on the floor and watching these three women just totally captivate a whole audience. Everyone was sitting on the floor, all mm. like on tables, and it was kind of all the windows misted up in the canteen. So there were so <laughs> many people in there, and we were all just totally blown away. And it was so special, and to be coming back five years later and playing the equivalent show with my band of women and one guy is just like it's really it's 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 sentimental in the best way mm-hmm. because that gig that I saw five years ago directly fed into my songwriting and yeah. me wanting to be nice a songwriter and explore that that side of myself mm-hmm. and yeah it was just really special um but we're going to do a show which incorporates the new solo stuff that we're all writing mm-hmm because we're all individually songwriters and we come together in this project. Mm. Actually, we've all kind of... Most of us have started writing within the project. So the project has been a, a springboard for us to unlock our individual songwriting. That's really Which cool. has been the most beautiful thing, like mm. watching some of my closest friends find their way into songwriting by the music that we've made together. It's like, it's really, it's really <laughs> amazing. I love it so much because they've really found their voices... And a lot of that is what our new album is about, is about all of us singing and writing our way through mm. some real darkness and like coming together through it. And it's, there's a whole journey in the album. Um, but yeah, so we're going to open the, open the afternoon with all of us playing some of our new individual stuff, yeah. our solo stuff. And then in the second set, play most of or all of the new album. 8th of March. 8th of March, 4pm 4, 4 4 till 6pm, free entry, pass the hat. The eighth uh, Sunday. Yes, oh, it is fantastic. actually International Women's Day, and it's our bandmate B's birthday. So double we occasion. Are going to be in a very celebratory mood. <laughs> we might make some cake. We're not sure yet. Ah. Well, you should be there, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a special one. Because mm, your first album's been out for. I think it dropped in twenty seventeen. Yeah, we put it out in twenty seventeen. Um, where can people was, listen to it? It's on Spotify. Mm-hmm. It's also on Bandcamp. You can buy it on Bandcamp. We had a lot... We, we 
I think we've run out of CDs. I'm not sure if we've got any CDs left. But um, our new album is... Oh, so our old album is a, a journey of self-expression, but it's much more... I wrote that album, so it's about kind of about me figuring out the aftermath of a very messy breakup that I went through, I don't know, four years ago or so. Yeah. Um, that, I, that I unexpectedly wrote my way through. I didn't know I was going to write songs and then I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that album is a kind of a series of postcards from that breakup. That's that's sort of what it feels like. Mm. And it was recorded here in Montpellier um, in the basement studio, live to tape, which now, when I look back at that, now that we're multi-tracking <laughs> and doing everything digitally and like working very slowly, I can't believe we did it we recorded the whole of our first album in a week live to tape with like a handful of really nice mics and no monitoring and eight musicians in a room and it was just nuts and then we recorded our ep sapling which came out two years ago um again we recorded it in a day live Mm. with a great producer called dan ninzani um and yeah like thinking about it now i'm i'm stunned that we managed to do that and I love multi-tracking yeah. so much <laughs> I just love it see like that that's kind of the opposite way you hear a lot of people talking about people are really kind of nostalgic for the old tape recording and everything like that but the digital multi-tracking and being able to edit things it works it's got its benefits it has its benefits <laughs> I was such a idealist before mm. and I'm really glad that we did it the way we did it on the first album because we didn't have the budget to do anything else yeah. to start with, and it was actually the cheapest way of doing it was was like this. But yeah, I also had a lot of misconceptions about um, how to capture my voice in particular. I was singing lead on all the songs, mm-hmm. although we had the harmonies in there. Mm-hmm. But I was singing lead, and I think that I hadn't accepted what my voice sounded like I didn't like the way my voice would would record digitally okay but I didn't know how to adapt it at that point so I had a lot of misconceptions about like ah tape sounding warm and Mm. a certain methods of recording like being very forgiving for the voice Mm -hmm. and also you know I was like singing and playing the mandolin at the same time in pretty much every track and like that's hard work Mm. yeah Um, and now I'm much more I'm much more of a perfectionist. Mm. And the way that I like recording now is like honing in on a particular, like really, really microscoping in on, on certain parts mm. of it and finding ways to capture it and knowing that there's loads that we can do to deliver the song in a certain way that's not the same as live. Like, yeah. yes, when you're singing in a live context, there's an element in which it has to be quite theatrical. You have to use a lot of charisma. You have to use a lot of gesture almost and you're really drawing people in especially because mm. our music is often quite quiet body language and movement and all of these things are yeah. are really important especially when you're singing about stuff that's very emotional as we tend mm. to do um and we clown around a lot on stage between between songs even though there's a running joke in our band that yeah it the juxtaposition of our incredibly silly <laughs> like lives as friends <laughs> and the way that we are so comfortable with each other off stage and on stage and we'll just like you know just just mess around those and then sing this like 
quite melancholy, quite serious <laughs> music. It plays off it plays off itself really, oh, really I love well. That. But you, it, you do have to you do have to break it up, don't you? You have to break it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like I like the fact that we're learning in the studio that we can we can let go of some of that need to perform and mm. actually just find the best sound. Yeah. And something that Theo, our engineer, has been helping us with a lot is like um, being a bit less precious about 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 vocal takes and, mm. and just kind of being quite close on the mic and almost throwing the words away. And it's like totally different to my experience of being a choral singer or like mm. a live singer or a folk singer where you sing to the end of each note and you, your tone is like so... It has to be so consistent and actually listening back to the takes, like I love the takes where... It sounds more vulnerable. Yeah. And it, it's it's been a lovely thing to kind of mm. unpack that. Especially when you're like you're close up to a condenser mic oh, and it's so like delicate and uh, you you get the intensity. because uh, you know, a good condenser mic will just sort of pick up all the little nuances mm-hmm. where it's a if you're alive, particularly like with my background doing sort of rock things, it's like some like an SM58, like a workhorse dynamic, and it's like I'm pushing like the mic like against the stand because I'm just so close to it. Mm. Because, uh, but uh, but then if you go to some like a in the studio with a really good condenser, and you can just be like, if you get close to that, it just picks up everything, and yeah. it's almost as if like when you listen back to it on certain headphones, it almost feels like they're like right in your ear. It's really intimate. It, it's really it intimate. No, it is really intimate. It's, it's one of the things that we've kind of loved exploring as a band because we're so vocal. I mean, we're so vocal, but we're so vocally <laughs> driven Like in our writing mm. is is finding all of this nuance in the way that we record. So for the songs that are very choral influenced, a lot of my writing is very, very choral influenced. Mm. We recorded um, all of our a cappella tracks. We, we tried recording in St Anne's Church in Greenbank. And some of them really worked and some of them just didn't. And it was, we've, I mean, uh, we've tried recording some of these songs in a few different contexts to see what sticks and what doesn't. And it was really interesting listening back to the a cappella tracks that are kind of our... They're kind of our, I hate the phrase, but they're kind of our USP. Like, they're the thing that people always yeah. respond to. They're like, oh, Your my God, there's harmonies. 
yeah, that's like your signature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a much nicer way of saying it. That's our signature sound. Is the these harmonies that people, mm. it just the sound of yeah. Lots of voices together is just very special. But mm. we recorded um, a couple of these tracks in the church, and it was beautiful because we needed that resonance. We needed the reverberation of the building. We've got a beautiful acoustic in St Anne's. Um, and some of them we listened back to and we were like, let's just try it in the studio with a click and see if it, see if it helps. Or let's try it in the studio just with like proper, proper monitoring and like have some, have the opportunity to, you know, ask the engineer for like, oh, I'll have a bit more of Claire or mm-hmm. I'll have like a bit more of myself or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was. Yeah. And actually that was lovely because it meant that we could finally find a way to deliver these songs. Yeah. And a lot of it was this idea that we would be singing very... The the impression would be that we're right on people's ears. Yeah. So that we don't have the sound of the room. There's one song in particular called Country Motion, mm-hmm. which um, which I wrote a couple of years ago, and it's this quite strange, twisty a cappella song. Um, it's, there's a live video of it on our Facebook page, um, Hands of the Heron's Facebook page, just called Country Motion, which is us singing in the studio a while ago. And it's... Listening, we listened back to the tapes with, with our producer Alex this week and it feels like we finally captured it because every time we've tried to record it before there's just been so much air in the song. There's been so much space that we didn't want there. Right. And actually hearing it recorded, close mic'd, with all of our voices just cutting across each other and intersecting in this way, it was like really exciting. Cool. And then if it's all close mic'd and separated, you can kind of like separate things in the stereo field. Yeah, it's so exciting. And then if you want ambience, if you get like a good reverb plug-in or something like that, then you can do that. Well, what we did was record the reverb of the church because Alex has a sine wave converter that means we can (laughs) recreate the same reverb. So we popped a balloon at the end of our session in the church. And caught the caught the sine wave. Oh, is that, is that how they do it? Yeah. That is so it's cool. Really, really cool. That so we're going to have the same reverb that we have in the church on all of the tracks. No way. But actually some of the tracks are recorded, most of the tracks are recorded in the studio. That is really cool. It's really cool. It's that like magic. Really cool. I love it. And this is what I'm really loving about like exploring sound a bit more is that there's mm. all of these ways that you can play Yeah. with sound. Yeah. I just really want to go back to uni and study it all. I can't <laughs> well, get a loan because I've already done a master's degree. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not so much about studying it. It's You can just get some hands-on experience, you know. Mm. There's always sound engineers who are always probably happy to have someone around of them. Or, sure, um, uh, Alex, your producer, uh, mm. would probably know a good few entries into that. Um, or Definitely. Oh, I'm gonna, we're, I'm, we're all helping him to produce the record in terms of, like, we're all feeding back into what we like, what we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's some composing that still needs to happen because of, like, you know, certain takes sitting alongside other takes so that there's dissonances that we can find or whatever it is, you know, there's, like, mm. I'm, we're, for the first time, going to be quite hands-on in the producer process. That's really cool. Which is really fun. And I kind of got a bit of a taste of this when I was helping my friend Ben make his record a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, Ben Osborne's debut album, Letters from the Border, I cannot recommend it enough. It's really beautiful. I'm very biased because I'm on it, but it's Ben's <laughs> writing that makes it great. Shout and his production. Yeah, he's great. He's based in Berlin, but 
comes over to work here still quite often. And What's seeing the his album called? Letters from the Border. Right. We recorded it out uh, in this studio on the border of Germany and Poland, East Germany and Poland, in the middle of nowhere, like this studio of um, this producer called Alex Stolzer from Nono Star Records. And he, yeah, we just sit in the garden and there's a there's a train line, literally train tracks that go down the end of the garden and we'd sit there like playing country songs and our gaps and our breaks from, <laughs> from making the album just like feeling like we were in some bizarre American period drama. And was just, we didn't see anybody else for a week. It was wow. intense, but really amazing. And like we were living and working in this, in this studio and being able to sit beside Ben while he was experimenting with production ideas was such an insight into the way mm. that you can play. Yeah. And, and he's an amazing sound designer. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In a, I don't know, kind of, I think just exploration of sound in that mm. album. There's a lot of really interesting sounds picked up from the space as well. Like every, all of the sounds came from the space. So there's one amazing beat, which... Um, so Ben and Alex, the, this different Alex producer, they're all called Alex, um, <laughs> and our friend Michael, who's also... Michael Bleach is also an amazing producer and songwriter. We were all sitting in the studio listening to some takes from that day of a song called A Bridge of Starlings. And we just kind of layered up, I think, like piano and vocals and a couple of other things, synths and stuff. And Michael was going to build a beat for this track because he's a really good beat maker. And while we were listening to the takes, I sat and I sketched a drawing of Ben sitting at the desk listening to the takes. And while I was doing it, Michael recorded my scribbles with the Zoom recorder. And then the next day manipulated the scribbles that he'd recorded to be the beat that then appears under the song. Oh, God. So it's this really bizarre meta field recordings, like, atmosphere. And everything came from that came from that one space and it's like I just found that really inspiring wow it's all the love the love we've lost we have to face we have to face it's all the love the love we've lost it's what we have to face it's all It's all the love that we've lost. It's what we have to face. That's what we have to face. That's what we have to face. That's what. You're sort of saying you want to get more into sound design. It sounds like you're already doing it, to be honest. That's how you learn. Yeah. That's how you learn. You don't need to sit in a room and have someone talk to you. The best way to do it is just to watch someone work and just every now and again be like, how, how do you do that? Totally. You know? Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, I think, I think you're doing it. Mm. You, you know, you definitely... I just need yeah. some time. And I need a space to work in. I'm on the hunt for a, a studio, like, just, just, just to practice and teaching and, like, general, general soft, like, you know, production work 
space that I can just be in every day because at the moment I spend my life cycling between students and sessions and <laughs> it's exhausting um, but I well, would like a space just to make weird sounds in. well if anyone has a studio capable of making weird sounds <laughs> and low budget but high enthusiasm <laughs> let well, me make weird sounds in your space yeah, no. <laughs> yeah I mean if that's not a good gum tree ad I just don't know what is yeah absolutely um, I really wanted to ask you about yeah. the uh, differences in classical Oh the yeah, classical world. We dipped into because I've heard yeah. I've heard a little bit, heard a few stories about it, it, and I'm fascinated. It's such a it sounds like a bit like a parallel universe where it, it's kind of like a lot of things are same, but a few things very. I don't know. I want to hear more about it. There's, I mean, I haven't been formally in it for a long time. I grew up in a world where we, you know, we played a lot of classical music and we sang a lot of choral works and we played in orchestras and we listened to a lot of Radio 3 and it wasn't pretentious, it wasn't it wasn't high and mighty. There's a, a lot of understandings, a lot of people look at classical music and they think, oh, it's so unreachable, oh, there's, there's loads of barriers of access. But actually, when I was growing up, like, I grew up in Maidenhead near Reading where the most interesting thing that happened was the choir that I went to, really. <laughs> Um, it was great and I got to travel with them a lot and it opened a lot of doors for me and it was brilliant mm-hmm. and the standard was incredibly high the singing was impeccable it was like 80 teenagers singing as one person it was astonishing um, shout out to the, the best conductor in the world Gillian Dibden who taught me like everything everything I, I studied with her from the age of 7 to 18 and she was just wow. phenomenal um, so in that way, it was it was very accessible to mm. me, and then coming to Bristol, the feeling in my music department, I think it was quite particular to one group of people that were in the department at the time, who had they were very assertive about their views, and they were very quick to judge people who didn't agree with their taste. And it was just a real shame because there was a lot of people who were writing and making very interesting music or writing about music in an interesting way. And I've always been fascinated by music as a social process and a social function, what it does. So that's always my focus academically is not music as this abstract thing, but why we do it, what it generates. Um, Although I am, I love theory. I love theory as an abstract thing and I will just nerd out on it for days and then. But for me, it's most interesting when it has a context. And the experience that I had that I know has happened to quite a lot of people in quite a lot of contexts who had a cla- who had a classical background was a feeling of being pushed out if you didn't fit an exact type. Mm. And for me, vocally, that type was like... Uh, almost like a... A lot of the decision-makers in the space that I was in seemed to favour a type of female voice that was very similar to like a boy treble. So it sounded very okay. kind of pure and very high and it had a sense of clarity about the sound that is very beautiful, but like, isn't that common among women? Like, mm. it's a very particular type of voice. And I didn't quite fit into that mould. And I experienced quite a lot of misogyny mm. around the... It, just within the power dynamics of that space of the, of the music department and some of the kind of peripheral ensembles in it. It was very competitive and it was very... 
misogynistic to be honest and it's a shame because I know that other people in other year groups and in other times in that department have had a really great time and I loved a lot of it a lot of it I had a really interesting time and I loved some of my lecturers were absolutely amazing so I studied for a long time with this this great lecturer called Justin Williams Dr Justin Williams who's a specialist in hip-hop and jazz and so I wrote loads of my work alongside him which was Mm. great and I loved that side of it but there was just such a feeling of like absolute right and absolute wrong. My way or the highway. Yeah, among some of it, which it's a problem. which is a problem because yes, of course we can always be striving for the for the best sound that we're able to produce, for the most tr- honest sound we're able to produce. Mm. But this idea that that is an exclusive experience and that there is a right way of doing it, I struggle with a lot, especially because you know I. I compare it now, I think, to so the experience of like the open mic, where, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe people aren't the most like technically, you know, flashy playing or or like flawless singing, but like there's so much heart, mm-hmm. or like you know some of the people that I teach or some of the people that I go to see at festivals, and I just I just bump into them at jam sessions and they're they're playing something that's so raw and it's so vulnerable and I don't think that something has to be you know a lot of the people a lot of these musicians that I meet they are incredibly talented and Mm. their voices are amazing Mm. and they've worked really hard on it and like they're finding their feet in their craft and it's Mm. it's amazing and I think for me it's always a question of accessibility and like if they would potentially be excluded from a space because someone's decided that they're pathway isn't yeah thanks that their pathway isn't enough it's not good enough or it's not clean enough mm. and that for them it's a barrier of access then then to me the the institution is wrong i yeah. think but then I, I don't know i struggle with it because you you do need spaces where people can can come together and and be very academic and be very technical and be very very focused but I just query whether it has to come hand in hand with this competitiveness and this like mm. this exclusiveness because I very much come from the camp of believing that everybody can create, everybody should create. It's a mm. fundamental part of our human experience. And if at some point we've come up against a teacher that said, Ah, you are doing this wrong or you should do this a different way, or a peer, even worse in a way, if a peer says, um, you shouldn't you shouldn't create or you should you can't be part of this because xyz you're you yeah know, whatever it is it's like that hurts a lot yeah and it's really it really is yeah we, we've all had it it's but, awful yeah. the number of students the singing students i have who say to me oh i was told to mime at school in school choir and sometimes they're into their 30s 40s 50s 60s and and it stays with you it stays with you and i'm i'm the person that's unpicking that mm. and there's some very old school ways of thinking about music making which trouble me because I know that I've been a beneficiary of those mm-hmm. ways of thinking. I know that I've kind of... It's the same way I think about grammar schools, you know. It's mm-hmm. like I chose to do the 11 plus and go to grammar school mm-hmm. and I got a pretty good education That's old there. school. It was old school, but it was the best school in the area mm-hmm. and I was just about within the catchment area for it and I went and I did it. And I'm glad that I didn't go to the local comprehensive, but would have been my other option because I was able to study politics and I was able to study things 
with a music that wouldn't have been a- open mm. to me if I'd gone to the other school. Mm. But what it taught me is that I fundamentally don't agree with grammar schools. Yeah. Politically. Although you, although you benefited from it. And it's, yeah. this is query of like, would mm. I have known mm-hmm. that I disagree with it conceptually if I hadn't learned about it as a concept, learned about my privilege as a concept by the education that I got in, in the school from, that I went from to. From the inside. Yeah. That's odd, isn't it? It's really odd. And I think the same about... Um, it's not just classical no, no, music, it's, but like it, it, it's it's not odd at all, as you know. Uh, it's it's just yeah. Sorry, that, that that wasn't right for me to say that. No, it's it's but it is, but it is, it's, it's it's a paradox. I think that's what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why I grapple with it now because while on the one hand I believe totally that music is for everyone and everyone should have access to education, and there's some amazing schemes in Bristol, like the Bristol Plays Music, mm. um, Saffron Records, and people like that who are doing some really cool things that are making pathways into music accessible for for people from all demographics and all walks of life especially young people it's really brilliant and yeah I wonder if like I know that I've been a recipient of like music education that's Mm. come from a privileged space and I know that and I know that the reason that I can... One of the reasons that I can write and perform now is because, you know, I I learned in quite, I suppose, like a prestigious environment mm-hmm. that, that does have a barrier of access. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't necessarily condone that. So it's like, yeah. it's a funny... And I know it's that a, I'm in positions yeah. of facilitating and leadership and, and whatever mm-hmm. because I have... Because... Not because everyone needs that background to have those things, but because... I, as an individual, have come from that background yeah. and it's given me a really good springboard into mm. the work that I'm doing now. So now I feel quite motivated to open up that knowledge to people that haven't had that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that's a really positive way of looking at it. I, I really like that. It's the only way I think I can justify it to myself and not just, like, hate myself. <laughs> yeah, for nah, you've not done anything that. wrong, though. No. And you've it's not like, done anything wrong. You know, and it's like I don't come from an enormously privileged background compared to, like, a lot of people. Mm. But at the same time, you know, like, I'm really lucky in that I was able to grow up having having mm. immediate access to these amazing yeah. things. It, it, it's a tricky conversation to have, isn't it? Like, what's the right way, what's the fairest way to sort of go about it? Because, you know, uh, training in music is quite a specialised thing. And, and I don't know if that could be, like... Um, depending how specialised you want to go, like it's not necessarily something that, that could be open to, to everyone because mm. it, it, it is a big, you know, it, it's not easy to do. Um, but I think like what's kind of messed up with the, like what you're sort of saying at like your university, mm. with that sort of my way or the highway, they only want people with a certain voice. It's kind of, it's kind of perverse. You take something beautiful like music and creativity and then you just regiment it into this sort of militaristic sort of, there's right and there's wrong and like you can't sing you can sing you can Mm. you shouldn't be composing it's oh like that stuff can really stay with you and and um, what was surprising was that that, I'm still trying to shake stuff off myself you know and it didn't really come from the other lecturers it didn't didn't come from the lecturers it it was more a feeling among a a very small number of very vocal students who had all like yeah, a lot of them had an idea of, of, of what they thought good music was and they mm. were very verbal about that. Yeah. And that I find troubling. But at the same time, I think that spaces should be 
curated. I don't think that spaces should be um, complete free-for-all mm. because I do think that certain certain voices will struggle to be heard in certain spaces if mm-hmm. there's no curation. So like, that's a lot of what I do as a facilitator or a host is find ways for it to be as egalitarian as possible. And sometimes for it to be egalitarian means telling some people like to take a bit of a backseat so other people can come forward. Mm. So otherwise you have the tyranny of the loudest, mm. which is also not fair. So it's like, it's not yeah. about spaces being totally unstructured, but that the people who are curating a space or facilitating a space or whatever it is are considering the needs of everybody yeah. That might be using it. I don't know. It's like I'm it's still really going to hard to get right, isn't it? It's really hard to get right. I don't think it's something you can get right. It's always going to be a little bit messy. Always. Always going to be yeah. a little bit messy. But it's, it's an important conversation to have. And I think nowadays we are, it's definitely much more in the fore in public uh, discourse. Mm. I really uh, think, think that's a good thing. Because, uh, you know, there's. I, I don't know what the answers are, unfortunately. I don't think. I think, I think the conversations are more important yes. than the answers. I agree, I agree. Um, and I think that we have a lot of work to do, especially under, I mean, I'm going to get political for a sec, because, no, please do. Yeah, but under our current government, mm-hmm. like, so many music departments have been closed because mm. they cut funding to the arts. Mm. And, I mean, I heard something last week about how the government was going to pledge for everyone to have, everyone under a certain age to have music lessons. But, like, I don't, buy it I don't no. believe it because mm-hmm. if the, if the government really believed in the arts as mm-hmm. like as the forefront of, of what we should be teaching in schools which I I really think is so important like mm-hmm. they wouldn't have put austerity measures into yeah into schools mm-hmm. and like you know allowed allowed music departments to close and I've seen I've I've witnessed friends who work in music education just absolutely devastated when they've seen the government announce cuts and realised that, like, you know, this person from this school is going to get sacked, this person from this school is going to get sacked because they literally can't pay their wages. And it's like, that's yeah. that's just, to me, that's unacceptable. And I am, you know, I'm the... I've grown, I've grown up in an environment where, like... So my mum's a teacher, my dad works at BBC, and, like... Mm-hmm. Music education has always been the, the most important yeah. thing in arts education, but it's because of the benefits. And you hear about kids in schools and like deprived areas who have nothing else to turn to, and it's it's yeah. the place that they feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, should be safeguarded because it's where people can express themselves. Yeah. Sometimes you know it's so the only when you, t- it's especially when you're growing up, you got all that adolescent sort of confusion and mm. rage <laughs> and, and everything and to be able to like stick it into like an instrument oh it's everything into such something constructed that makes you feel good uh yeah it's just it's just a really healthy way to to, to come up it's like what we talked we, we were talking about earlier like with this like um the benefits around learning an instrument mm-hmm. uh they could be so beneficial like uh definitely i mean having said that like a lot your confidence yes, it, it, can, can. It, it just helps you walk with your head held a little bit higher and for, for a lot of kids that's such it was a big thing for me mm-hmm. um uh, so I know it's got to be a big thing for other people. It has to be, up, especially you know? because for so many people that I know, I mean every member of my family, and and me, like music departments were places that we hid in at school because, like sport, wasn't the thing. I mean, like I, I can't catch ball. I've been terrible at sport. I've, it's never been something I've enjoyed, and I, 
used to skive off every game session and go hide in the music department because it was where I felt safe every lunchtime, every after school, before school, every break. Like, I was there because it was where I felt like I could be myself. Mm. And that's always been the case, and it's the thing that drives my music education now is that, like, of myself and of other people, is that I know that it's a place where if you can get past your fears of whatever you're carrying around your craft, mm. it's, a, it's a place where you can really be yourself. And, yeah, it definitely helped me to deal with all sorts of things like, you know, bullying and feeling mm. out of place at school and feeling like I didn't really belong anywhere and then I'd go to choir practice and just blend in <laughs> and be like, ah, oh, I'm fine. Mm. And yeah. I know that for my band, that's that's an experience that we've all had that we have been through some real trials together. Like, mm. just, you know, all of the usual things like breakups and being evicted from houses, losing jobs, whatever it is, all the things, plus some, you know, like, bigger things. like Going through your 20s together, you know? Yeah, exactly. And there's, like, chronic illness and there's mm. chronic mental health problems. There's, we've, you know, we've all been broke and whatever it is. And, like, actually, the band has always been the space that we've come into and kind of gone, oh, okay, let's play some music. And, yeah. and sometimes that's the space that we're able to be vulnerable in. It. really enjoy the first one as well by the way thank you so really, much really really enjoy it so i'm really glad yeah it sounds like it sounds like you guys are in a new direction for, for this new one it's new and it's not new i mean it's still us writing melodies and seeing mm-hmm. seeing what we can build around it but what i'm really excited about is that everybody else's songwriting voices are on it well you sound severely excited about it and that makes me excited well, thanks. <laughs> yeah we're going, be, we're going to be self-releasing it again so there'll be um we did a crowdfunding for it a couple of months ago so we'll be producing kind of CDs with really beautiful artwork. There's some the artwork's gonna be printed as well. There's gonna be an album launch tour. I guess we need to sort that out soon. So but we're doing all it that. Ourselves. So when that all gets announced, how can people find out about it? Uh, on our Facebook page, which is just Hands of the Heron. So Facebook.com forward slash Hands of the Heron. Same for Instagram. Um, those are the kind of main channels that we use. Although I really need to set up a mailing list. 
Mm. Um, I also posted a lot about it from my personal channels, which is just Bethany M. Roberts. Um, Bethany M. Roberts music. But the, yeah, Hands of the Heron page just mm -hmm. kind of contain all of that information. And we've got a video currently being prepared for one of the singles called um, Moon Bloom. And we've got a wonderful um, videographer that we're working with called Tamsin Elliott. Mm -hmm. And she is making this really gorgeous, very artistic video for us. Worked with a beautiful dancer called B. Catherine Weirs, who just captured the essence of the song so well because it's a song that's all about finding your inner wildness mm. when you're locked into the concrete of the city and you know that there's more you know that there's a deeper scene running through life and you go you see the full moon and it just brings out this yeah. side of you that's like very very primal just, <laughs> just remind you that we're all basically just like hairless chimps <laughs> animals with shoes yeah yeah. Well, that amazing, that amazing Terry Pratchett quote, somewhere between the falling angel and the rising ape. Ooh. My favourite quote ever. Ooh. Terry Pratchett. You yeah, like it? Yeah. I like that. Before, yeah. She get that written down and put in some artwork and have it in the studio somewhere. Yeah. Just in case you ever, you know, you're ever taking it all too seriously. It's like, somewhere between falling angel and the rising ape. That's really cool. Mm. Awesome. Great. Cool. So we like an hour and a half that's wow. really yeah, cool I've got to go teach a lesson yeah <laughs> alright is there anything you want, you want to uh, leave people with so um, Hands of the Heaven you guys should absolutely check them out uh, debut album's out on Spotify isn't it uh, debut album's out on Spotify and the new one will be coming out I think hopefully in June we need to lock in the exact dates for release but we will be playing um, a release some release shows around Bristol and London and I think some places in the east. Um, but our next show is the 8th of March at the canteen, 4 pm till 6 pm to celebrate International Women's Day. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be there. Yeah, it'd be nice to see Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And if if anyone wants to know more about the project, um, feel free to drop me a message on bethany.m.roberts. That's my personal channel <laughs> that I've kind of put everything up on. Brilliant. Everybody wants to come to the open mic with it every Tuesday at 8pm. Yeah, fantastic. All right, okay. Beth, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks nice so one. much for a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, goodbye, everyone. This episode of BMM was brought to you by Exordium. Exordium is putting power back into the hands of our artists by providing customizable services to help you to create amazing music, build a strong and loyal fan base, and sell more event tickets. Their services include recording and production, artist development, marketing, distribution, and event management. Check out their website for more info and make sure to use offer code BMM in their quote form to get an additional 10% off your first project.